The first of my posts to the Facebook group was a focused summary of chapters 3 and 4. Chapter 3 takes us through life in Winnemac Medical School. First, we glimpse the classroom of John Aldington Robert Shaw, professor of physiology, a man too busy with his pretentious name-dropping and his absorption in correctness to notice the disruptive antics of Cliff Clawson. While Cliff clowns, Martin develops a self-conscious, insecure contemptuousness for the whole study of medicine. Reading Max Gottlieb's scientific papers, as much of them as he can, which isn't much at all, he has developed the conviction that the only experiments that matter are those dealing with the very foundations of life and death. We learn of the debates that rage in Di Gamma Pi over the value to an aspiring doctor of remembering anatomical terms. Whatever their thoughts about the matter, they all mindlessly memorize so that they can, quote, crawl through examinations and become an educated person with a market value of $5 an hour, unquote. We get a peek inside the dissection room, where the most memorable of the pleasantries that occur there is the incident of Cliff Clawson and the pancreas. As the Board of Regents are being given a tour, one of them reverently holds his hat behind him, and Cliff Clawson, less reverently, drops a pancreas in it. When Ira Hinckley threatens to expose him to the president, Angus Dewar earns Martin's renewed and still reluctant respect by telling him to kindly shut up. In his own struggles of self-definition, Martin prefers the raucous cliff to the self-righteous Ira. When Martin feels exasperated with the pettiness of his medical school peers and professors, he and Cliff escape to the Zenith saloons and make slurred, self-important speeches about the evils of commercialism and the nobility of a devotion to the ideal of research. When Angus Stewart takes Martin, who is illimitably ignorant of literature, of painting, of music, to see a different, more cultured side of Zenith, a classical concert, Martin experiences idealism in the form of incomprehensibly beautiful music. He is exalted and longs to do great things. For a moment, and then he wonders, will this peace never quit? His idealism is still a mood that occasionally floods his soul, then quickly passes. A week after the concert, Martin rediscovers Madeline Fox. He is drawn to Madeline by her comely appearance and her energetic culture, pretty clearly in that order. Which is for the best, given that for her, being cultured means having very strong opinions about authors she hasn't read in five years. Martin rants to her about all the darn studs not doing science, but instead just learning a trade. He is disconcerted when Madeline echoes back the sentiment, saying how dreadful it is the way that English grad students just want to make money rather than teaching. He enjoyed thinking himself alone in his smug superiority. When she qualifies her position, saying that one does also have to be practical, and criticizing Gottlieb for his bad suit and desperate need of a haircut— Martin responds with religious zeal and confused metaphors. She says he is right. She praises him for his fine mind, and he is in love. But then, 
too busy studying the anatomy of the eye to think of ladies' eyes, he forgets about her. In the digam's labors over final exams, the most difficult labor of all seems to be the concerted effort to see that Fatty Faff is prepared to pass them. All other methods failing them, they tuck a crib sheet in his breast pocket and send him on his way, saying, He'll use it. He'll get through or get hanged. And he gets through. As Martin becomes more and more volubly devoted to the Gottlieb gospel, his restless doubtings become irksome to his housemates, who offer to take up a collection to send him home where he won't have to be bothered by their lowbrow commercialism. He realizes they have a point. He should either shut up or get out. And he questions how much he really means it and what he is going to do. But it is Cliff Clausen, tired of Angus Dewar's nagging, who gets out. And Martin, no less irked by Cliff, but also alienated from all his career-driven companions, decides to follow him. He spends that summer as a lineman in a wire gang, and the simple life of a laborer amidst the ripening wheat of the prairie seems to clear his head of all the pretensions and irritations of medical school. But as soon as he boards the train back to school, it is the peace of the Montana wheatland that he leaves behind him, and all his petty cares come flooding back. When we next see him, he is in bacteriology class, where Max Gottlieb is about to inject a guinea pig with anthrax germs. The students gawk at him apprehensively, while Gottlieb recalls the glory days when he returned from studying with Koch and Pasteur, and students crowded him reverently, awed by the sensational discoveries in bacteriology and longing to know. Now he finds himself looking into faces at best frightened and at worst vacant. As Gottlieb assassinates the guinea pig with cool and expert precision, he murmurs to the students a sacred principle of laboratory work. Quote, the most important part of experimentation is not doing the experiment, but making notes, very accurate, quantitative notes, in ink. Unquote. Dewar admires Gottlieb's technique, but criticizes his abandonment of real-world practicality. Hinckley worries over the morality of killing animals. Cliff finds humor in the jerking motion of the pig. And Martin imagines himself doing the same experiment with Gottlieb's unerring fingers. Martin finds ecstatic joy in the confusion of the bacteriological lab and he begins working there by himself at night. One night, Gottlieb himself appears and compliments Martin on his craftsmanship. He invites Martin to have a sandwich with him, and he talks nostalgically of his international scientific adventures as if Martin were a contemporary. He bears his soul to Martin, lamenting that so far he has really done nothing but, quote, be unpleasant to people who claim too much, unquote confessing his dreams of making real discoveries, and musing cynically about whether it is worth destroying germs to save, quote, unbeautiful young students attending YMCAs and singing dinkle songs, unquote. And Martin runs home, altogether drunk on the experience. 
The next of my posts was called Martin's Adolescent Idealism. If I were teaching these chapters in the classroom, I would definitely give my students the following assignment. Describe Martin's adolescent idealism, discussing both his longing for ideals and how that longing is undermined by insecurity, fickleness, and an inflated self-image. We see many variations on that theme in this chapter. When Martin becomes restless in his medical school classes, more and more convinced that the only worthwhile endeavors in medicine are those that deal with the very foundations of life and death, Lewis says, quote, In melancholy worry about his own unreasonableness, he found that he was developing contempt for Robert Shaw's rules of the thumb and for most of the work in anatomy, unquote. He looks down upon his medical school classes, but he does so in melancholy worry about his own unreasonableness. On this occasion and others, he feels superior, yet simultaneously unconvinced of his superiority, or even sure whether he really means it. When, talking over bad beer in a Zenith saloon, Cliff Clausen tells Martin, You're only one it gets me, Mart. Martin replies, with alcoholic fondness. What a meaning-packed phrase. Sure, you bet. You're just like me. My God, do you get it? Martin is able to convince himself, in a haze of drunken glory, that he and Cliff alone possess a noble disdain for commercialism and a reverence for research. Cliff, the one who dropped a pancreas in the regent's hat. He exhibits this smug self-importance again in his rantings to Madeline Fox but he doesn't take kindly to the fact that she too fancies herself a dreamer amidst a world of careerists. He doesn't want the sympathy of understanding. He wants to think he alone can make claims to idealistic glory. There are many more examples to be integrated with these, so look for them and share them. They get to the essence of Martin's struggles with who he is and what he wants and what he should be. The next of my posts was called Favorites. I love Martin's introduction to classical music, which, for a moment, exercises its soul-stirring power over him and inspires him to do great things. For a moment. Quote, Martin found himself in a confusion of little chairs and vast gilded arches, of polite but disapproving ladies with programs in their laps, unromantic musicians making unpleasant noises below, and at last, incomprehensible beauty, which made for him pictures of hills and deep forests, then suddenly became achingly long-winded. He exulted, I'm going to have them all, the fame and Max Gottlieb, I mean his ability, and the lovely music and the lovely women, golly, I'm going to do big things, and see the world. Will this peace never quit? Unquote. One of our group members, Molly, made a comment on this passage that I think perfectly captured what is going on with her own poetic flair. She said, quote, I see that moment as him grasping an emotional connection between the music and his desire for a certain kind of future, followed by exhaustion at the effort of sustained emotional integration. He's not used to it. It's tiring. He's young and immature, and he is still developing the muscularity of his soul. Unquote. 
I love the introduction of Madeline Fox, the phony English grad school intellectual type for whom being cultured has more to do with appearances than it does with culture in any meaningful sense of the word. It means dropping the right literary names, wearing the right clothing, and making a show of storybook manners. Quote, she believed herself to be a connoisseur of literature. The fortunates to whom she gave her approval were Hardy, Meredith, Howells, and Thackeray, none of whom she had read for five years. She had often reproved Martin for his inappreciation of Howells, for wearing flannel shirts, and for his failure to hand her down from streetcars in the manner of a fiction hero." Unquote. I also love the description of the way in which his summer labor in the Montana wheatlands frees him for a moment from the petty anxieties of university life, and from the self-examining doubts always swirling around in his head. Quote, Climbing all day long, he breathed deep, his eyes cleared of worry, and one day he experienced a miracle. He was atop a pole, and suddenly, for no clear cause, his eyes opened, and he saw. As though he had just awakened, he saw that the prairie was vast, that the sun was kindly on rough pasture and ripening wheat, on the old horses, the easy, broad-beamed, friendly horses, and on his red-faced, jocose companions. He saw that the meadowlarks were jubilant, and blackbirds shining by little pools, and with the living sun, all life was living." Unquote. Psychologists who teach mindfulness ought to use this passage. It shows what it means to escape from an incessant focus on your internal monologue of worries, and instead turn outward and connect with what is actually going on around you, and see. Some of you may have seen the captioned picture I created for the Read With Me Twitter account, with the following quote, in which Martin defends Max Gottlieb's variety of reverence for the sacred. Quote, You think Gottlieb isn't religious, Hinckley. Why, his just being in a lab is a prayer. Unquote. Someone rightly pointed out the connection of this line to one from Ayn Rand's The Fountainhead, for those of you who have read it. Quote, You're a profoundly religious man, Mr. Rourke, in your own way. I can see that in your buildings. That's true, said Rourke. It was almost a whisper. Unquote. I had so many more favorites. I'm always interested in hearing yours, so please feel free to share. The last of my posts was called The Darkling Thrush, a poem by Thomas Hardy. In all her literary pretentiousness, Madeline Fox gives her approval to, among others, Thomas Hardy, though she hasn't read him for years. I thought we should do better. I'll be teaching a Hardy poem in a lecture on love poetry this summer, and I only recently discovered his work. I love it. Perhaps someday we should read one of his novels. The following is a poem called The Darkling Thrush. In it, a man looks out over a desolate, wintry, lifeless landscape. He sees in that wasteland a metaphor for the dismal closing century and he despairs over the state of things. Then, all at once, among the bleak, leafless twigs, a little thrush sings out an ecstatic song. Feeling it has so little cause for joy, he wonders whether its happy song in spite of things 
foretells some hope for the future. Here's the darkling thrush. I leant upon a coppice gate when frost was specter gray and winter's dregs made desolate the weakening eye of day. The tangled bind stems scored the sky like strings of broken lyres and all mankind that haunted nigh had sought their household fires. The land's sharp features seemed to me the century's corpse outleant. Its crypt, the cloudy canopy, the wind, its death lament. The ancient pulse of germ and birth was shrunken hard and dry, and every spirit upon earth seemed fervorless as I. At once a voice arose among the bleak twigs overhead, in a full-hearted evensong of joy illimited. An aged thrush, frail, gaunt, and small, with blast-beruffled plume, had chosen thus to fling his soul upon the growing gloom. So little cause for carolings of such ecstatic sound was written on terrestrial things afar or nigh around, that I could think there trembled through his happy goodnight air some blessed hope whereof he knew, and I was unaware. We could spend hours analyzing the beauty of Hardy's expression. The first stanza paints a picture bleak beyond all bleakness, with every nuance of language, from meaning to connotation to sound. The scene is set in the dregs of winter. The close of day is a weakening eye. Men who once haunted the land have now abandoned it. Dry, leafless branches tangle the scene like the broken strings of a lyre. Everything combines to create a lonely, desolate, ghostly, death-like scene. In the second stanza, the landscape becomes a metaphor for a century entombed, with the clouds as the ceiling of a crypt, the wind a death song, and the hard, shrunken earth its grave. And then the little thrush bursts upon its scene, oblivious to the misery of man. With its full heart, its illimited joy, it heedlessly flings its soul upon the gloom. That little thrush is a wonderful image for hope in the face of despair. In the Read With Me recording of The Nightingale and the Rose, I suggested we should all strive to be like the nightingale. Perhaps we can also find inspiration in the thrush. <laughs> 